Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, Dr. Posen, Adam Posen with us with the Peterson Institute. I'm going to ask one question and let truly one of our Washington experts uh, dive in here. Adam, the Peterson Institute will be writing about tax reform. What tact will you take? Well, I have to do the disclaimer. Our individual scholars take each their own tact. But they're pretty much going to all agree, which is, A, this is much more about cuts than reform of the tax system. B, the in line with what you were saying on TV before, Tom, that the claims of uh, wage improvements and job improvements in the short term are vastly exaggerated. C, there are a couple good things in there, like the move somewhat towards territoriality, the cutbacks in the mortgage interest deduction. Um, the expensive investment, but D, as my colleague Jason Furman, among others, has pointed out, the question is what are those pay-fors paying for? And if they're just paying for heavily tilted towards the rich on the personal tax side and uh, not terribly useful tax cuts on the corporate side, it's not going to go very well. For those of us who live in uh, high tax states like New York and New Jersey, the state and local tax uh, Deduction. I know Boston. Boston wouldn't Boston be one would of those. Of, Washington's yes. yeah, not either. You, uh, I, I noticed you did not mention that. Is that one of the things that is bad, or is that actually more? Again, I, I'm, I'm not going to make that the biggest bad thing because that is more about redistribution than about the economy as a whole, and it is hitting the people who take deductions rather than the standard deduction. That said, it's clearly a political move of trying to starve the beast of state governments that hurts people mostly in blue states and that in particular uh, is going to make it harder for state governments to sustain their tax rates and thus the size of their governments. So I don't view it as good. Um, But again, this is all getting away. The big picture thing is that these these pay-fors are not going to be anywhere near enough for an economy at basically full employment. And what they're claiming is $1.5 trillion in deficit increase at that state of affairs, which is already bad, um, is probably going to be closer to $2 trillion plus. So given the deficit implications of this proposal, you know, you, you've watched Washington for a long time. How do you rate the chances of actual tax bill of any kind getting through this Congress? I've been an outlier for some months now because I've, I said a year ago, September, in a forecast – Um, that the big economic policy of the Trump administration, besides deregulation, which people overlook, um, is going to be corporate tax cuts and everything else will be sort of secondary. And I was wrong about the timing because, like everybody else, I couldn't believe they'd faff around for nine months before submitting a budget. Um, But the bottom line is that's what we're going to end up with. So I I think it's 85% plus chance it it gets approved. And whatever else needs to be shed will be shed, but the core of the tax changes for the corporate statutory rate will remain. As you glance at this, how much economic growth can Republicans model? I understand mm-hmm. in the heat of the right. the moment, the camera lights are on, they frame a bigger number. Right. But can you do you have a working number where you can gross up GDP off of the enthusiasm of tax cuts? 
Well, I tend to um, – there are people, as you mentioned earlier, about the Joint, joint uh, Committee on Taxation, the CBO, Congressional Budget Office within the government, and then the, the tax center, Urban Brookings, uh, outside government as well as the Tax Foundation that do this stuff very carefully. But as a macroeconomist, and it's, in, it's consistent with their analyses, you know, you're adding to the deficit three-quarters of a percent of GDP a year, probably closer to 1% both on average, but then maybe a little front-loaded. Um, and some of the investment stuff is particularly front-loaded in its impact. So I could see you having a multiplier on that, given that we're at full employment of, you know, around 06 um, you do a little dynamic scoring. You can maybe push it up a little bit from there. I don't think much more. Mm. So that gets you close to 3% growth for the next couple of years. And it's not sustainable. It's adding to the debt. Um, it's not entirely efficient. And we'll see how much goes into actual investment rather than to dividends. But leaving all that aside, yeah, I mean, it's better to be lucky than to be smart, Tom, as I certainly know. And I think the president was, in a sense, lucky that he didn't get his budget till now, because now the boom is probably going to be perfectly right. timed for the 2000 election. Interesting. Adam Posen, thank you so much. Very valuable on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio uh, today. Marty, what is what are you watching for in, in, within, you know, Craig Gordon and the whole team in Washington working on this? Is What's the twister angle in tax reform? That, that you're watching for? Well, I'm, I'm watching Paul Ryan. I mean, uh, Interesting. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, he is the tax wonk. He is the guy who everybody respects uh, in terms of his intellectual capacity on these issues. And what he says, if he can bring his house along, because there are a lot of divisions within his party, as I yeah. mentioned earlier, that's the key for me. Interesting. And we'll overlay that uh, politics, if you will, with some of the analysis out of Washington particular shout out to Urban Brookings uh, and their tax policy center. Worldwide, this Jobs Day, this is Bloomberg. We now welcome on Bloomberg Television Worldwide and here on Bloomberg Radio William Gross, he was very kind to be with us on Fed Day and reduxes that with Janice Henderson uh, right now. Bill, you know, I really want to talk about the broader fabric. We see the U6 number come into 7.9%. Are, are we at a point where the financial crisis and the labor crisis of that uh, disaster is behind us? Well, I think so. Um, you know, to the extent that we've got a little room to to, to lower if uh, a crisis appears over the horizon to the extent that quantitative easing might come back. You know, I think we've got some ammunition. And, and in fact, we do, Tom, have a, a decently, as economists would call it, robust economy with uh, growth at 3% plus, at least for the last two quarters, despite these rather <coughs> disappointing employment numbers. So I, I think we're past the crisis certainly in most of the world, most of the developed world, but uh, we have a potential crisis, I think, in Asia and in China going forward. You were more than generous to be with us uh, here on Fed Day. I did ask you about Jerome Powell. I'll be nice, Bill. You, uh, maybe it's because the San Francisco 49ers are doing so poorly this year, but you weren't polite about it. You didn't mince words. We thank you for that, about the next chairman of the Fed. You heard him speak yesterday. How can economists... Assist, assist Jerome Powell to a better Fed? 
Well, I think a certain kind of economist can assist Jerome Pyle, and that, that depends, of course, on the appointments going forward. Uh, you know, Trump's got three and, and certainly four, I think, as uh, Janet Yellen probably will resign, as, as uh, Fed chairman and uh, chairwomen uh, do in tradition. And so he's got four appointments going forward. He can pack the court, so to speak, just like, like FDR. And it... It depends on his appointments going forward, whether they're doves or hawks, and I presume that they'll be doves. And so uh, what uh, can we learn from that when they're appointed? Uh, you know, p potentially we can learn, in my view at least, that uh, there are subjective factors, longer-term structural factors, such as demographics at play, such as technology advancement and displacement of labor at play, and ongoing globalization. So we can learn from those things as opposed to the old-fashioned models right. such as the Taylor Rule and others in the Phillips Curve that you know have been failing us for the past 10, 15, 20 years. I hope he appoints someone with a more subjective as opposed to a model-driven view. Here's a key question, uh, Bill Gross, and we uh, thank you for joining us on radio and television uh, this morning with Janice Henderson. If we have low-rate Janet, if we have low-rate Jay, and we have yield curves flattening, 1030s flattening, 210s flattening. What does that signal to Bill Gross if you see flatter yield curves in the zeitgeist of a low-rate uh, central bank? Well, a flatter curve is not a positive. And let's look at it this way. Since, uh, you know, 2011, and that takes us way back. But, you know, the, the, the 210 curve was 450 basis points, and now it's uh, at 100 or less. And so it's flattened considerably since then. Has it made a difference? Not really. But in mm -hmm. my view, at some point it will. Typically, you know, economists and strategists say it's got to go flat before <coughs> a recession appears. I would say in a highly levered economy with a lot of debt, and that's, typifies the U.S., that we don't have to go flat, that perhaps another 20, 30 basis points of tightening would be enough in order to induce certainly a slowdown in the economy. And I think central banks and the Fed itself has to be careful in terms of using historical standards to judge monetary policy. I don't think they can raise interest rates too much further before there's the potential to slow economic growth. This is absolutely critical, folks, what Mr. Gross is saying here. Jason, I want you to come over here. We're doing this on the fly. And look, Jason, wheel around here, and I want to show what Bill Gross is talking about right now. Here is the yield curve, and down here are recessions. We're coming in like this, and Bill Gross, where do we get on the yield curve where it becomes a recession indicator? We're at 72 basis points. How many basis points are we away where we flip from optimism to a real concern about economic slowdown? Yeah, I think around 40 or 50. So I, right I here. don't see your chart, but I know what you're talking yeah. about. Um, and, uh, you know, that indicates, uh, you know, perhaps another uh, 50 basis points in terms of Fed funds and maybe uh, 10 basis points higher in tens uh, to produce that, that type of number. You know, the, the critical element in all of this is really the cost of credit. And uh, what cost of credit? And we're talking about mortgages. We're talking about corporate loans. We're talking about, uh, you know, government bonds to a certain extent. The cost of credit relative to... Um, you know, the nominal growth 
growth in GDP. We have better nominal growth. We have 4% plus nominal growth now. Uh, and uh, the cost of credit uh, you know, is, is been supportive <coughs> of that. It's certainly quantitative easing has been supportive of that. Yeah. Uh, to the extent that we don't have QE, to the extent that <coughs> interest rates go up by 40 or 50 basis points and your curve flattens by 30 or 40, then all of a sudden the cost of credit and the absence of credit growth um, as typified by QE become factors. And so I, I think I think the Fed has right. to be careful. I know, I know they think they have to be careful. I mean, we're going to do this. I'm going to make a chart up here for Bloomberg Radio, also for John Farrow. I'm going to make up a chart here to show that tip point of 40 to 50 basis points. Bill Gross, on tax reform, you've got to live with it. Can you live with a $1.5 trillion deficit yeah. add-on? Or do you believe, as Adam Posen believes, Adam Posen, that we could go out to a $2 trillion add-on? Well, you know, here's, this is a funny one, and, it, and it's, uh, you know, I'm starting to rethink this, Tom, because we've seen, uh, you know, not necessarily deficits expanding, but uh, central banks buying trillions and trillions of dollars worth of debt and then uh, re recycling the interest rates back to the, the central government. And so, you know, do deficits matter? I, I think ultimately do, they do. Uh, we talked a few days ago about, you know, the, the present value of all of our liabilities, including Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. It's, you know, perhaps instead of 18 trillion, it's perhaps 70, 80 trillion. Of course, debt matters. But in the short term, I don't think it matters that much. And, uh, you know, we're moving to a fiscally stimulative type of uh, environment as opposed to a monetary stimulative type of environment, then perhaps that's what we need. But ultimately, yes, I'm a believer in low debt as opposed to high debt. And it, it's incredible to me, you know this too, that the Republican orthodoxy has simply changed from uh, fiscal doves to fiscal hawks and to uh, deficit uh, deniers to deficit supporters. Uh, the, the entire party has flip-flopped. With me, Marty Schenker. Uh are running all of our economics and government and now chief content officer for all of Bloomberg News. Marty, what is your observation off the jobs report before we get back to Bill Gross? Well, I'm a little surprised that we hadn't heard from Donald Trump tweeting on the uh, numbers of the jobs report, which yeah. uh, he has not hesitated to take some credit for. But I think he is uh, yeah. on his way to Asia. I think he's boarding a plane Almost uh, to Honolulu. To, to yeah. Honolulu, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bill Gross with us with Janice Henderson. He's been very kind to be with us, and I want to get back to tax reform and its ramifications on the nation. But, Bill, there's a Bill Gross that people don't know, and I'm not talking about your resurgence of the San Francisco 49ers and bringing Mr. Garoppolo over from uh, the New England Patriots and the fact you can beat the Cardinals and the Giants here in the coming days. I'm talking about your article for the CFA Institute of a few years ago. Consistent alpha generation through structure. This is 12 years ago, and it's a Bill Gross, I think, that a lot of our listeners don't know. We are seeing, Bill, a lot of black box theories of hedge funds blow up, and we see it with challenging results. Maybe Ray Dalio of Bridgewater, who I just had the great privilege of speaking to, where it's really, really hard now to make money, quantitative, black box formulaic, whether it's risk parity or this, that, or the other thing. Is that from another bygone age, or can those guys create alpha down the road? Well, I, I would agree with the premise of your question, Tom, that, that it is getting much harder to generate alpha, if only because 
um, returns, certainly interest rates and potential equity returns are lower. I, I mean, uh, you know, information ratios of the past were in part generated simply by bull markets. And now, um, as in interest rate spreads are very narrow and opportunities, in my view, are limited, you know, alpha generation becomes uh, much more difficult. A, a firm like uh, PIMCO, when I was at PIMCO and we could generate 150 basis points per year in alpha, you know, it becomes uh, very challenged. And I would say uh, relative to that period of time that a, a, an excellent manager that can generate 75 basis points right. over the market is probably uh, in a good stead. So, yeah, it's very difficult. And I, I think the age of active management is it's not dead, but it, it's certainly overpriced, and uh, we're going to have to see some changes going forward because well, they can't generate what they used to generate. And, and classy of you, Janice Henderson, mentioning your former uh, employee, as well as, as we mentioned Ray Dalio at Bridgewater. If that's the case, if active is a challenge, what needs to be the response? Almost from a portfolio structure basis, to just assume less diversification, less theory, and more let's take a chance? Well, no, I, you know, I, I wouldn't advise that. I, I think that's what's occurring. Uh, you know, individuals and pension funds and institutions are taking more risk in order to generate what uh, they hope for uh, in terms of returns relative to their liabilities. Um, it can only go so far. We know spreads can only go so tight before defaults tend to take over in the bond market. We know, I suppose, in the stock market that PEs can only go so high bef before you know, it becomes limited in terms of its future expansion. And so, yeah, I, I, I'd say uh, you know, we have a limited future in terms of uh, expected returns. And the, the response as investors are, are uh, exhibiting is basically to move into a lower feed product to uh, take away mm -hmm. some of those uh, returns from the managers as opposed to themselves. Yeah, Bill, Morty Schenker here. Is there risk associated with that search for alpha out in the marketplace? Increased well, uh, there risk. always is. Anytime you, move, anytime you move out from a treasury bill, there's risk. But I, I would say this, yes, when, when interest rates are basically zero, and they are or negative in Germany and other places, and, and certainly very low in the United States and elsewhere, um, you know, the, the risk is in, increased. I mean, a 30-year swap, most of your listeners may not be, uh, you know, appraised of this, but a 30-year swap basically only earns 50 basis points a year in terms of carry with a close to a 30-year duration. It's, a, it's an impossible situation unless uh, basically interest rates stay the same. So all markets are overpriced. I use the term fake markets because... Uh, you know, they're being generated by artificial stimulation from central banks, which at some point will disappear. It's not disappearing yet, but in, in 2018, for instance, central bank stimulation, check writing, quantitative easing, um, will uh, go flatline as opposed to a trillion dollars a year positive. And so it, there will be a point where, where risk enters the equation simply because monetary stimulation slows down or even goes negative. If you were, uh, had the ability to uh, counsel Jerome Powell on policy prescriptions going forward, what would, what would those recommendations be? Well, I would advise him uh, to study uh, some of his own uh, Fed research from the San Francisco Fed, for instance, where they've done historical studies for a long time in terms of the 
the neutral interest rate and, and uh, to try and find and seek out and search as he moves higher, uh, you know, 25 basis points per quarter, uh, what that neutral interest rate is. It, it used to be in nominal terms around uh, 4% and now perhaps with inflation at 1.5% it's probably around 2 but that's a probably, nobody knows. I would say, Mr. Powell, find that magical uh, neutral interest rate which keeps inflation at 2% or lower and growth at 2% or higher and, uh, and tread carefully because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a changing number and it's a, it's a new world in terms of credit. And, and keep reducing that balance sheet, I would imagine, right? Well, I think that's okay. I'm, I'm not a balance sheet uh, fanatic in terms of reducing it. I, I sort of think, uh, Marty, that the balance sheet itself at $4 trillion plus is really a reflection of the leverage in our economy. Uh, we've got about $68 trillion in terms of total credit and $4.5 trillion in terms of uh, the Fed balance sheet. And look at that as a bank, uh, you know, with ac equity capital maybe of 5 or 6 percent. You know, if you re reduce that by half, you're... Uh, you've got an equity capitalization of 2 yeah. or 3%, and we know banks don't do well on that. So I, I'd, say, uh, I'd say leave the balance sheet alone. It's okay, yeah. uh, but they're, they're going to go forward. Bill, the president yesterday with uh, uh, Chairman Brady of the House Ways and Means Committee trotted out their card, their tax reform card, which I'm sure Bill Gross will be doing his taxes on uh, this year, the little 3 by 5 card, making it simple and all that. What is, yeah. your pros what is your prospect for tax reform? What, what do you, how do you model it into your business? And frankly, how should our listeners look at tax reform out three, four, and six months? Well, first of all, Tom, in my view, it's not tax reform. It's tax cuts, cuts, cuts. And the cuts are basically pointed at corporations as opposed to individuals. And we can talk about the details and so on. But um, it's a corporate tax cut. It's uh, market friendly. I won't deny that. It has been market friendly. But uh, most of the benefits go to corporations and individuals uh, basically are flatlined despite the, the claims. I, I would say this is the interesting argument that I'm seeing. It's sort of like the Laffer curve uh, uh, being back, uh, but this time regarding wages. Their claim, uh, the Republicans claim, that, uh, you know, if, if you uh, can, can lower taxes, you can raise wages, the old uh, trickle-down. And it's supported by continuing studies by the Council of Economic Advisors, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, private economists such as Larry Summers and others, uh, you know, Summers uh, said yeah. the other day that he would give an F to F to any student who submitted a paper supporting this logic. Um, so we have an ongoing debate. I say one chart, and I'll, f I'll finish with this in Please. terms of the answer. Uh, the, econ the Economist has a chart this week uh, which shows uh, lowering corporate taxes in many countries over many years. And basically, it's a push in terms of the wage gains for the population. And so, uh, you know, big arguments back and forth, but uh, I suspect it's not going to help much in terms of wage growth. We certainly didn't see it today, did we? No, we did not. Bill, thank you so much for coming prepared. Mr. Garofalo, is he going to make a difference for the 49ers from New England out to San Francisco? Yeah, I think so. I think the Niners will win a game this year. Uh, they may still get the first uh, draft choice if the Browns do the same, but uh, I think next year it's a better season. How can it be worse? Very good. Bill Gross, thank you for your attendance today and particularly uh, joining us a few days ago on Fed Day as well. We greatly appreciate uh, his perspective. He is with uh, Janice Henderson.
So over the next half hour, we hope you regroup with us on an extraordinary week of economics, finance, investment. Uh, David Gurra, Francine Lacroix, and I, Nera Chayich, were humbled by the quality of the guests we get to speak with. Vincent Reinhardt yesterday was a real high point. I thought that Alan Blinder added value on Fed Day. We spoke to Mr. Gross twice, uh, any number of other guests. And it is wonderful to try to summarize the week with Joachim Fells, with Morgan Stanley for years, where he literally founded with Steve Roach, the zeitgeist of Morgan Stanley Economics. He holds court at PIMCO as their global economic advisor. Joachim Fells, if you were to write for Monday morning, what would your essay be on this historic week? Well, Tom, what would my essay be? Well, first of all, I would point out that the U.S. economy, you know, if you look at payrolls and uh, the other economic data, is really what I would call a so-so economy. And I say so-so because uh, the Fed characterizes growth as solid. That was the new language in the FOMC Mm -hmm. statement. And they also said inflation is soft. So we have a so-so economy. And importantly, we now have a, a new Fed chair who is very much like the old Fed chair. So the Powell Fed, what will the Powell Fed look like? Well, it's probably going to be like the Yellen Fed, just without Janet Yellen. Um, And then the big question that I would pose is, you know, how much of a tax cut will we get? And is it a good idea to cut taxes in the ninth year of an economic expansion when the labor market is gradually running out of slack? I'm trying to figure out which way to go here. Let's go to tax reform, which, of course, is the headlines today and what everybody will be thinking about uh, into the the weekend. If we have tax reform and you question the need for it, given the buoyant economy, if every single interview we've talked about uh, and talked to says it's tax cuts, Knox tax reforms, is Joachim Fels going to be writing fiscal economics in 18 or 24 months? Well, look, I think there is a need for tax reform, So, um, I, I, but I don't think there's a need for a big tax cut. So tax cut, the way I would define it, that's just demand stimulus, and that's not what this economy needs at this stage of the cycle. A tax reform, a real tax reform that reduces marginal tax rates but broadens the tax Mm -hmm. base and is good for long-term growth, that's something we need. But unfortunately, that's not what we're likely to get. So much of this, and this to go to PIMCO and the new normal, the new neutral, I'm I'm coined a phrase today. You can steal it from me, Yakum, and the royalty check will be great uh, for the new hockey skates the kids need. Uh, The new restrictive. Uh, Where is, when do we get restrictive? How can we have a new restrictive if people are criticizing Governor Carney for raising rates and people out past December say, what will the U.S. do? Do you know where we get restrictive? Well, that's the one million dollar question, I think. I mean, nobody really knows where this famous neutral rate is. Well, we think that, you know, it's around two, two and a half percent in nominal terms. But there's huge uncertainty around that. You know, anybody who has run these models that estimate the neutral rate knows that it could easily be 50 or 100 basis points higher than that or lower than that. So to put it differently, we may already, there's a a possibility that we're already pretty close to neutral and may move into restrictive fairly soon. Because if you look at the current situation, we have uh, inflation, core PCE inflation running at 1.3%. The Fed funds rate is uh, at 1 to 
0.25. So if you think that the real neutral rate is around zero, then we're not far away from that. So this is why I think the Fed and the Powell Fed will have to treat very, very cautiously as they raise interest rates. And they will also have to factor in that they're running down the balance sheet, which in itself, you know, uh, should have a restrictive impact. So nobody knows where restrictive is, but I think we may be closer than the consensus thinks. On a social basis, and I look at China real rates as being higher, Jakob Fels, why can't we get back to a nicely positive inflation-adjusted rate, whether it's Fed funds target or three-month or five-year, or maybe I'll go out as far as seven years. It, it seems like the rules are broken, the model's broken, and I can't get back to normal inflation-adjusted interest rates. Well, I don't think the rules are broken. I rather, and, and I don't think the model is broken. I rather think the world has changed. And yeah. so I think what's weighing down on this famous equilibrium interest rate and therefore also on market interest rates are these secular structural forces, demographics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, aging, rising life expectancy, which induces people to save more. And we have uh, another uh, major global force, technology, um, and a third one, globalization, which both uh, lead to higher desired saving and lower desired investment. So this is weighing down on the equilibrium interest rate. And then whenever central banks try to hike their own rates above that equilibrium rate, uh, then the economy falters. So this is why I think we are stuck in the new neutral, right? There is no escape from this saving glut. This is a wonderful and thoughtful conversation with Pimko Yakumfels, our global economic advisor. I want to continue this discussion. I'm going to really center in on the word that's percolating up for analysis for 2018. It gets a little geeky nerdy, but I really want you to stay with us with Yakumfels on the dynamics of capital, the dynamics of investment, if you will, the dynamics of labor. And as he mentioned, this dynamic and this interesting human condition of our new technologies. I guess it dovetails with Apple trotting out the new toy uh, today. Yakum Fells with us with PIMCO. And as I promised, we're going to go back to Robert Solo, MIT 1957. I am using the phrase, quote, technical change, unquote, as a shorthand expression for any kind of shift in the production function. Yakum Fells, Robert Solo, and we're honored that the laureate has been with us a few times over the years. Robert Solo's technical change of 1957, is that the same as Yakum Fells' technology and technical change and innovation of 2017? Well, we're definitely seeing a lot of technical change, Tom. Um, I think what has changed over the past few decades is that a lot of the innovation and the technological change we are seeing is not showing up in productivity. So we're seeing rapid technological change, but uh, a lot of that actually benefits us in our free time. Uh, It adds to consumer surplus. We can do amazing things with those new iPhones that, you know, people have been rushing out to buy today. But uh, that really doesn't increase productivity in the workplace. So we have this you know, this this really big discrepancy, the gap that is opening up between the pace of technological change and uh, productivity in the economy, where we're not really seeing a pickup. And I, th- I think that, you know, I think we'll continue to yeah. live with that gap. 
And it, it has some far-reaching consequences because lower productivity means our living standards are not rising uh, as rapidly. Right. Um, it also means that uh, we are seeing, uh, to go back to what we discussed earlier, we're seeing uh, less and less investment in real capital by these large superstar firms. So they're not really investing in real capital. They're investing in people and in ideas. Um, and that means the corporate sector has now become a net saver. This is really new. So corporates, especially those large superstar firms, they are saving more than they invest. So they add to the savings glut. And this means that they contribute to the low interest rate environment that we're stuck in. If I look at the core function, labor productivity is something to do with the output as compared to the labor input. I'm holding my iPhone 7 in my hand. And yesterday I probably emailed the vicious uh, boss that I work for 14 times. I'm certain, Joachim Fels, that's not in the statistics. How does my use of my Apple iPhone affect the nation's output volume and also its calculation of labor input? Well, the simple answer is it doesn't. Both, doesn't, both it doesn't sides. Show. Critically, it doesn't show up on the numerator or the denominator, right? <laughs> Correct. So, you know, it may make you more happy, Tom, to be able to do all these nice things on your iPhone, but this doesn't show up in the in the in the statistics. Um, but it adds to consumer surplus. So, you know, our well-being, you know, if you want to call this well-being, you know, to be able to use all this information on the yeah. iPhone, our well-being is increasing, but we're not capturing it. in. No, the but it's a labor statistics. communication. I mean, I'm, I'm, you misunderstood me. I'm not sending emails or tweets out on my iPhone. The witch from Purdue, she's the boy. She, she's sending me, granted, if she sends me the Purdue football schedule, that's recreational. But if she's yelling at me, telling me what to do, hate mail and all that, that's labor input. That's got to be calculated, doesn't it, into hours worked? Uh, no, it doesn't. Doesn't I think she she can send you more of those hate mails with the iPhone than she could otherwise? But That's I don't true. think I don't think that gets counted because she can just do more in, in every hour. And so, you know, maybe it's even dis, maybe it's even subtracting from from your productivity because I'm not sure it helps you, Tom. My, I, you know, I, folks, I, John, I got to get Jakob Fels as my agent. You are just digging I mean, a I hole mean, for yourself, I and I don't want he's done any part Pimco. of this. He can be my agent. Jakob, to productivity on a, on a on a larger scale, does it fit into the calculations of a given central bank, or is it so esoteric as for me and our listeners it is? Does it really fit into what I'm going to do December 13th? Well, it, maybe not Maybe it doesn't matter for December 13th, but it matters for central banks thinking on where they will end up or where they where they want to end up when and, and when they get to neutral. Because low productivity growth is one reason why the neutral rate of interest has come down. So I think for central banks, it's a it, it matters a lot. Yeah. What productivity growth does and what what it will what it yeah. will do in the future because uh, that determines on where that famous neutral interest rate is. How do you respond when a president of the United States or a prime minister? I don't mean to pick on Mr. Trump. Within the politics, says we're going to get to four percent GDP or a run rate of three percent. How do you respond to that? Well, it's easier said than done, you know, to get there. Yeah. So uh, with a labor force, say here in the US, growing at you know half a percent, 
you would need a big pickup in productivity. And we just discussed that that's pretty unlikely. So mm -hmm. I would not try to get growth up there. I think you could do it in the short term if you if you do a big fiscal stimulus. But the price to pay for that would be overheating and probably a more aggressive Fed. And yeah. then you end up in a recession one or two years later. This has been very generous. Jakob Fells with us with PIMCO, their global economic advisor. His writings you can see at their website. I really can't say enough about the combination of Professor Claret or Richard Claret and Jakob Fells uh, at PIMCO for uh, trying to help you get your thoughts straightened out here and particularly into weekend reading. It's been a seismic week for economics, finance, and investment. We're all going to regroup over the, uh, the weekend and dive into November, really dive into November here, I feel, on uh, Monday, that dash to year end and then into 2018. Of course, a lot of what we're going to do is on tax reform. Our team is really trying to give you perspective out of Washington from the think tanks. We will lean on the Urban, Brook Urban Brookings uh, Tax Policy Center, These are the experts across. They're they're bipartisan. They're they're across all of the the different political regimes of Washington. Uh, Bill Gale and uh, Eugene Sturley, of course, who's been on the show many times, and Howard Gleckman, uh, really providing in the trenches leadership for Tax Policy Center. We'll try to get their perspective over the coming days on this incredibly important document. Whether you think it's tax reform or if it's tax cuts, however you want to look at it. Whatever the politics is, it's a convoluted and complex set of hopes by the GOP and by the president. And we'll see where that uh, leads. I'm sure we'll see a lot of writing on that over the weekend. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.